We are in Explore God, our Explore God series. The question today is, is Christianity too narrow? Scott Grant, by the way. And uh, I'm going to make a slight adjustment to the question because, as I said a few weeks ago, I'm not crazy about the word Christianity. If you like it, that's fine. I'm just not a real big fan of the, of the word for two reasons. Number one, you can't find it in the scriptures. You can look cover to cover. It's not in the Bible, number one. And number two, to me, Christianity sort of implies a system as opposed to a way of life. So as I'm looking for a word in the scriptures that describes what we believe that is more along the lines of way of life, is there a word? Yes, there is a word. Way, that's the word. That's the word that the apostles use in the book of Acts and elsewhere in the scriptures to describe what we as believers in Jesus believe and how we live and how we walk. We walk in the way the way of the Lord. So the question before us today is, is the way too narrow? Is the way too narrow? Now, I won't hold you in suspense, and you know how I'm going to answer the question anyway. Is the way too narrow? No, the way is not too narrow. It's narrow, but it is not too narrow. Now, to give us a fuller answer to the question, we need to go back to the beginning when God created Creation. God created the heavens and the earth, and then he creates humans to live in his creation, to worship him, to reflect his glory, his splendor, his royal presence out into the world in the way that they live. But the first humans turned their back on God. They rejected God and his ways in favor of themselves and their own ways. They became the rebel rulers of their own lives trusting themselves and not trusting God. What this, what this did was this opened the door then for evil to enter the world, Satan, sin, and death. What we're looking at mostly this morning is sin. Their first sin opened the door for sin, that is rejection of God and his ways to enter the world. Now, if you look at the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter four and following, you see that sin entered the world and then spread through the world. And by the way, we're planning to look at those early chapters of Genesis beginning in January here. We're gonna preach through Genesis one to the beginning of 12. But you see there in Genesis four and following how, how sin spread throughout the world. Now, the apostle Paul in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, looks out on this, knows this history, and sees everything that's going on in his world, and he says this in the book of Romans, Romans 5, verse 12, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, the result of this, the effect of sin, has been absolutely devastating. Just look out on the world. Just look at, look at some of the things we've prayed for this morning. The violence that rules the world, the confusion, the deviation from all of, all of the things that God says are, are beautiful. You look out on the world and we see that the world is just dealing with these devastating consequences of sin. Now, most people in our world, probably in our world, will not look out on all of these problems and say, well, this is because of sin. This is because humans have rejected God and his ways. They would say, yes, the world is full of problems, but they wouldn't agree with the biblical diagnosis by and large. They would say that the world is full of problems and then put forth solutions. What are the solutions to these problems? And these solutions, be they religious or secular, mostly have to do with 
Improvement, human improvement. How can we do better? How can humans improve? Uh, so uh, maybe I need to get a little bit better. Maybe I need to improve a little bit. Probably a lot of people would say, yeah, I can do a little better. But probably a lot of people would also say, other people need to do a lot better. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm okay, maybe I need a little improvement, but other people, they need a lot of improvement. Society needs a lot of improvement. And so these solutions are put forward then to the problem, and the solutions have to do with human improvement, humans doing better. Now, there were some people in Jesus' day who basically had this same approach, human improvement. Humans need to do better. The Jews in their day needed to do better. These people were called Pharisees. And Jesus was none too pleased with them because they took the Mosaic law, that was the law that was given to the people of Israel. God gave them this law. They took this law and they interpreted, interpreted it in a very narrow way and then really mandated that everyone else interpret it the same way and obey their very narrow description of what it meant to be obedient to God. And here's what Jesus said about the Pharisees. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So that was one of the solutions that was offered in Jesus's day, and Jesus opposed them, opposed their solutions. Now, one of the problems with the, with the whole human improvement methodology is that it reflects a very shallow view of sin. It's not that bad. We can do better. We can do, I can do better and people can do better and I gotta try to convince people to, to do better. I gotta vote the right way, get the right people in office, pass the light, right laws and we can, we, can, we can handle this. That reflects a very shallow view of sin. And the haunting question and often the crushing question becomes, how good is good enough? I need to do better. How good is good enough? People need to do better. How good is good enough? Sally Cohn is a commentator for CNN, and she wrote a book recently called The Opposite of Hate. And toward the end of the book, she has this very interesting confession. She's encouraging people not to hate, but she finds that she's got the same problem. Here's what she says. Personally, I haven't figured out how to stop hating, let alone how to consistently pursue meaningful, mutually respectful connections. I'm constantly catching myself hating someone or something, from being checked at a slow driver to saying that maybe, uh, that maybe most Trump voters are deplorable racists to wondering if the trans person I just met is a real woman, my own hate constantly oozes out in small and big ways. In other words, I haven't arrived at some place of enlightenment. I've simply realized I need to turn on the light and start noticing things differently and trying to be different. Notice her solution to the problem, trying to be different. Well, let's hope that we all do better. But again, the question is, how good enough? How good enough? 
So the, the question, is the way too narrow, must be seen in light of the breadth and depth of human sin. We have to understand something of the problem that we're dealing with, the breadth and the depth of human sin. From obvious and heinous atrocities such as genocide to the subtle and insidious pride that resides in each one of us. If you actually consider pride a sin, try getting rid of it. Not so easy. Sin is like valley speak. Now, valley speak entered the English language in the 1980s. Valley speak entered the English language and took over. It took over the way people speak, especially it took over the word like. Consider the following uses of the word like, which were unheard of 50 years ago. I'm like totally bummed out. You wouldn't, wouldn't have heard that 50 years ago. It was like the best thing ever. I'm like, forget that. And he's like, no way. Where I'm like is a stand-in for I said. Now, so valley speak is everywhere. And I was curious, did they use valley speak in England? And I was watching a British documentary the other day, and they were doing it. The, 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 the valley speak has taken over the English language. And I, look, let me just make a confession, okay? I'm not, I'm not crazy about valley speak. I, I understand that the language changes, but I'm an old editor, and I, I, I would edit that stuff out, and just here's, here's the proper way to speak. And, and I try not to use valley speak, but like, I can't, like, help myself. <laughs> Sin is like valley speak. It is taking over the world. And if, you, and if we think that we can be good enough, well, that's a slap in the face of a holy God. Really, we as sinful people can be good enough for a holy God? That's a slap in his face. And if you think of God as something other than holy and something like a kind old man, then may I ask you, what is a kind old man going to do about genocide? If you think of God as something like a kind old man, you have just talked yourself out of divine justice. Because God hates sin. And he's going to do something about it. He's going to bring it to an end. He's already done something about it in Christ. And we'll talk about that in a minute. He's in the process of doing something about it. Takes the eyes of faith to see it. And one day, sin is going to be eliminated and eradicated. And there's going to be a judgment which we're all going to have to face. And I hope you have Jesus on that day. My friends, God does not want good people. This is a misunderstanding of cosmic proportions. God does not want good people. God wants you. That's what he wants. God wants you. Listen to Jesus. He says this, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and following. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Listen to Jesus again. Another invitation in John chapter 7, beginning at verse 37. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Notice, in these two invitations, Jesus is inviting anyone, everyone, come one, come one, come all. This is not exclusive, this is inclusive. Everyone is welcome. The invitation goes out to everyone. So, the way is wide. It isn't narrow, yet. It is wide, open to everyone. Now, the irony is that we are asking the question today, is the way too wide, when back in Jesus' day, they had to answer the question, is the way too, I mean, we're asking the question, is the way too narrow, when they had to answer the question, is the way too wide? Because what Jesus was doing was he was inviting people to be part of him, part of his followers, who were sort of the outcasts. He invited sinners. That would be uh, Jewish, uh, non-observant Jews, and you could come and be part of me. He was inviting tax collectors. They were considered turncoats. You can come and be. He, and especially the apostles, then were inviting Gentiles of all sorts to join him in the way. And certain people didn't like it. The Pharisees didn't like it. Matthew chapter 9 and Jesus was reclining at, at table at house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You're letting everybody in. And then the apostle Paul, later in the book of Acts, he hears from Jesus, and Jesus tells him, go, you've got to share this, all, this, share this good news with the Gentiles. And his opponents, his Jewish opponents said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Again, they're letting everyone in. The way is too wide. Notice, however, that Jesus' invitation goes out to anyone and everyone, but it's not completely indiscriminate because it goes out to anyone and everyone who senses his or her need. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Do you labor? Are you laboring under the burden of sin? Are you trying to get out from that burden by doing better, but you can't ever quite get out, of that under, out from underneath that burden? Are you thirsty? Do you thirst for something more? Do you thirst for new life? So Jesus is speaking to people, but people who understand that they need something. How is, how is Jesus able to do this? How is Jesus able to relieve people of the burden of their sin? How is he able to give them living water in order to slake their spiritual thirst. He's able to do this, first of all, because he goes to the cross. He went to the cross. He died for our sins. We should have been there. He went there instead. He died for our sins. Then he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead, and then he gave his Holy Spirit so that we could be in relationship with God, we could know God, and we could know him forever. 
That's why Jesus is able to do this, because of his death and his resurrection. Now, the best that other systems can do for you is offer you a few rules and a few adages and a few ways of living and say, do this, and maybe things will get better. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus offers himself. So do you labor under the burden of sin? Do you thirst for something more, something you can't quite identify, but you know there's something more out there? Do you thirst in that way? Christian Wyman is a poet, and he says this. There is an enormous contingent of thoughtful people in this country who, though they are frustrated with the language and forms of contemporary American religion, nevertheless feel that burn of being that drives us outside of ourselves and that insistent, persistent gravity of the ghost called God. There's an enormous number of people out there, maybe you're one of them, frustrated with the contemporary forms of American religion and spirituality, but you feel that burn of being. In Jesus' words, you thirst. You thirst for something more. Maybe it's that gravity of the ghost called God, and he is real. And he is here today, and he's wanting you to know him. Jesus does not say, come to anyone. Jesus does not say, come to anything. He says, come to me. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Then also look at John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus speaking to one of his disciples. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's Jesus and Jesus only. Entry is through Jesus and Jesus only. Entry, in, entry into the kingdom of God. So the way is wide. The way is also narrow. It is wide and it is narrow. The question then, is it too narrow? Is the way too narrow? Fascinating verse from the Hebrew scriptures in the book of Lamentations. In the book of, and the writer of Lamentations says this, Lamentations chapter three, verse 39, why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? And here he's saying, in view of human sin, why should any of us complain? In view of our own personal sins, that is rejection of God and his ways, why should we complain about our lot? We don't have a leg to stand on. To the question, how are you doing, I've heard some people answer, far better than I deserve. Interesting answer, right? How are you doing? Fine, I'm doing okay, I'm not doing okay. I'm doing far better than I deserve. You know why? We're alive. <laughs> We're all doing far better than we deserve. In view of the biblical description of the breadth and depth of human sin, we are all doing far better than we deserve. The better question is not, is the way too narrow, but why is there a way at all? 
In view of human sin, why is there a way? Why did God make a way? The answer is love. That's why there's a way. That's why God made a way. It's because he loves us. He loves us as humans. He created us. We walked away from him, but he wants us back. He loves us. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 in the New Testament. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the punishment for our sins. There's love. There's the gospel. There's the good news. God makes a way for us by sending his son and his son dies on the cross in our place so that we could know God. C.S. Lewis wrote this essay called The Weight of Glory. It is magisterial. I tried to read it through about once a year. Here's what he says. It is written that we shall stand before him. That is God. We shall appear. We shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but to be delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Such is the nature of God's love for us. Narrow isn't always bad. Narrow is often good and beautiful and necessary. So say you're being wheeled down the hall and you're going into the operating theater and the surgeon is about to make an incision in order to save your life. And right before you go under, you say to the surgeon, excuse me, doctor, um, I don't like doctors and surgeons who are too narrow. Would you, would you just cut anywhere, please? Just, just I'm, sure, I'm sure I'll get better. I'm sure it'll work. Just, just, you know, just cut anywhere or just, just mess around in there and, and make me better. No, of course you're not going to do that. Say you're going to a concert, and Mozart is on the program, and the musicians play brilliantly, and the conductor beautifully interprets the notes that are on the page and leads with this great sensitivity, and the whole concert hall is in awe. And you go up afterwards, and you say to the conductor, excuse me, ma'am, um, I think that was a little too narrow. Those notes that, that guy Mozart, he wrote that, those notes, that's, I don't, it's just too narrow. Next time, would you just play anything? Have the, have the musicians just play whatever they want. Just start playing and whatever they want, it'll all, it'll all work out. It'll sound great. No, of course you're not. Or you're a football fan and your quarterback goes back to pass and the protection is good. And he finds his receiver out in the open, but really not exactly in the open. He has to thread the needle through the outstretched arms of three defenders. 
and he does so. And the ball arrives safely in the hands of the receiver and the receiver scores the winning touchdown as time expires and the home team wins and the home crowd goes crazy and you're not really happy about this whole thing, although you're a fan of this particular football team and somehow you're able to make your way down to the field after the game and you make your way up to the quarterback and you say, excuse me, Mr. Purdy, that, that last throw, that, that was too narrow. Too narrow. Well, I think what you should have done, and consider doing this next time, just, just throw it up for grabs. I'm sure that ball will be batted around a whole bunch of times, but, you know, our receiver's going to get it, so just throw it up for grabs. Would you do that, please? Of course you're not going to do that. You can complain that you cannot lie down in the middle of US 101 and a good, get a good night's rest. You can complain about that. Or you can go to your bed. You can complain that you cannot drink the sand. Or you can go to the fountain and drink from the fountain. Every place does not have what you need. It is obvious. A recent survey by the Barna Group discovered, just not much of a discovery, that about half of the people, half of the adults who live in the United States believe that all religions basically teach the same. That's what about half the people in the United States believe. All religions teach basically the same thing. Now let's think about that for a second. That's a pretty narrow statement, don't you think? If I say, all religions teach the same thing, and you don't agree with me, I'm saying I'm right and you're wrong. And you can accuse me of being too narrow, right? No one else died for our sins. No one else rose from the dead. No one else sent the Holy Spirit so that we could know God and know him forever. If anyone else did that, if Muhammad did that, or Buddha did that, or Confucius did that, or Moses did that, or Abraham did that, then we could say that the way is too narrow. But there's only one person who did those things. There was only one person who died for our sins. There was only one person who rose from the dead. There was only one person who gives us the Holy Spirit. Question, is the way too narrow? Not if you want forgiveness of sins. Not if you want to know God. Not if you want to spend eternity with God. If you want to do those things, there's only one place to get it. Rather, there is only one person to get it from. And he calls out to be heard. And what does he say? Come to me. You go anyplace else, you're going to be disappointed. Come to me. Do you want to be an ingredient in the divine happiness? Do you want to be delighted in as a father delights in his child or as an artist delights in his work? You gotta come to Jesus. The way is narrow, but it is not too narrow. In view of our sins, there shouldn't be a way at all. The way is wide. It is graciously wide, open to everyone. Do you labor under the burden of sin? Do you labor under the burden of feeling that whatever you're doing, it's not quite enough? 
Come to Jesus and you will get rest for your soul. Do you thirst for something? Do you thirst for something that you might call new life? Come to Jesus and rivers of living water will flow in your heart and out of your heart. It's a poem by Robert Frost that is quite well known. I'd like to finish with this. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference. May I suggest to you, may I urge upon you, if you do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ, take the road less traveled by. Turn to Jesus. In ages and ages hence, you will say, for all eternity, it has made all the difference. Would you please stand? For those of you who have questions about this and are seeking the Lord, I would invite you to come to lunch upstairs in the upper room, out the hall, up the stairs. I'll be there. Several other people will be there. We'll be having a discussion, a lunch, sharing lunch together, answering any of the questions that you have about Jesus. Um, Would invite you to that. We're going to respond to this uh, by singing a couple songs, the first of which is an invitation. This is Jesus inviting us. The Father's arms are open wide, and Jesus is calling. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, I specifically want to pray for anyone who is seeking you today and maybe doesn't know you yet. Would you work in his heart, her heart? Just let, let 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 the ears be open to hear Jesus calling. Let them understand that the Father's arms are open wide. And would they come to you, repent of their sins, come to you, turn away from one way, walk in the way that leads to eternal life. So grateful, Jesus, that you have done this for us. Father, that you have done this for us, that you have made a way for us, and that you love us so much.